0: The core principle of Republican government is that the voters should choose their representatives, not the other way around. Partisan gerrymandering turns it the other way around. And of all times to abandon the court's duty to declare the law, this was not the one. Justice Kagan, with whom Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, and Justice Sotomayor join, dissenting. For the first time ever, this court refuses to remedy a constitutional violation because it thinks the task beyond judicial capabilities. And not just any constitutional violation. The partisan gerrymanders in these cases deprived citizens of the most fundamental of their constitutional rights, the rights to participate equally in the political process to join with others to advance political beliefs, and to choose their political representatives. In so doing, the partisan gerrymanders here debased and dishonored our democracy, turning upside down the core American idea that all governmental power derives from the people. These gerrymanders enabled politicians to entrench themselves in office as against voters' preferences. They promoted partisanship above respect for the popular will. They encouraged a politics of polarization and dysfunction. If left unchecked, gerrymanders like the ones here May irreparably damage our system of government. And checking them is not beyond the courts. The majority's abdication comes just when courts across the country, including those below, have coalesced around manageable judicial standards to resolve partisan gerrymandering claims. Those standards, satisfy the majority's own benchmarks. They do not require, indeed, they do not permit, courts to rely on their own ideas of electoral fairness, whether proportional representation or any other. And they limit courts to correcting only egregious gerrymanders. So judges do not become omnipresent players in the political process. But yes, the standards used here do allow, as well they should, judicial intervention in the worst of the worst cases of democratic subversion, causing blatant constitutional harms. In other words, they allow courts to undo partisan gerrymanders of the kind we face today from North Carolina and Maryland. In giving such gerrymanders a pass from judicial review, the majority goes tragically wrong. Part one. Maybe the majority errs in these cases Because it pays so little attention to the constitutional harms at their core. After dutifully reciting each case's facts, the majority leaves them forever behind, instead, immersing itself in everything that could conceivably go amiss if courts became involved. So it is necessary to fill in the gaps, to recount exactly what politicians in North Carolina and Maryland did to entrench their parties in political office, whatever the electorate might think, and to elaborate on the constitutional injury those politicians wreaked to our democratic system and to individuals' rights. All that will help In considering whether courts confronting partisan gerrymandering claims are really so hamstrung, so unable to carry out their constitutional duties, as the majority thinks. Section A The plaintiffs here challenge two congressional districting plans, one adopted by Republicans in North Carolina and the other by Democrats in Maryland as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders. As I relate what happened in those two states, ask yourself, is this how American democracy is supposed to work? Start with North Carolina. After the 2010 census, the North Carolina General Assembly with Republican majorities in both its House and its Senate, enacted a new congressional districting plan. That plan governed the two next national elections. In 2012, Republican candidates won nine of the state's 13 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives although they received only 49% of the statewide vote. In 2014, Republican candidates increased their total to 10 of the 13 seats, this time based on 55% of the vote. Soon afterward, a district court struck down two districts in the plan as unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. The General Assembly, with both chambers still controlled by Republicans, went back to the drawing board to craft the needed remedial state map. And here is how the process unfolded the Republican co-chairs of the Assembly's redistricting committee, Representative David Lewis and Senator Robert Rucho, instructed Dr. Thomas Hoffeller, a Republican districting specialist, to create a new map that would maintain the 10-to-3 composition of the state's congressional delegation, come what might. Using sophisticated technological tools, and precinct-level election results selected to predict voting behavior, Hoffeller drew district lines to minimize Democrats' voting strength and ensure the election of 10 Republican congressmen. Lewis then presented for the redistricting committee's retroactive approval a list of the criteria Hoffeller had employed including one labeled partisan advantage. That criterion, endorsed by a party-line vote, stated that the committee would make all reasonable efforts to construct districts to maintain the current 10-3 to partisan makeup of the state's congressional delegation. Lewis explained the partisan advantage criterion to legislators as follows. We are drawing the maps to give a partisan advantage to 10 Republicans and 3 Democrats because I do not believe it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and 2 Democrats. The committee and the General Assembly later enacted, again on a party line vote, the map Hoffeller had drawn. Lewis announced, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats, so I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country. You might think that judgment best left to the American people, but give Lewis credit for this much. The map has worked just as he planned and predicted. In 2016, Republican congressional candidates won 10 of North Carolina's 13 seats, with 53% of the statewide vote. Two years later, Republican candidates won nine of 12 seats, though they received only 50% of the vote. Events in Maryland make for a similarly grisly tale, For 50 years, Maryland's eight-person congressional delegation typically consisted of two or three Republicans and five or six Democrats. After the 2000 districting, for example, the first and sixth districts reliably elected Republicans and other districts as reliably elected Democrats. But in the 2010 districting cycle, the state's Democratic leaders, who controlled the governorship and both houses of the General Assembly, decided to press their advantage. Governor Martin O'Malley, who oversaw the process, decided, in his own later words, to create a map That was more favorable for Democrats over the next 10 years, because flipping the 1st District was geographically next to impossible. A decision was made to go for the 6th. O'Malley appointed an advisory committee as the public face of his effort, while asking Congressman Steny Hoyer, a self-described serial gerrymanderer, to hire and direct a mapmaker, Hoyer retained Eric Hawkins, an analyst at a political consulting firm providing services to Democrats. Hawkins received only two instructions, to ensure that the new map produced seven reliable Democratic seats and to protect all Democratic incumbents. Using similar technologies and election data as Hoffeller, Hawkins produced a map to those specifications. Although new census figures required removing only 10,000 residents from the 6th District, Hawkins proposed a large-scale population transfer. The map moved about 360,000 voters, out of the district, and another 350,000 in. That swap decreased the number of registered Republicans in the district by over 66,000 and increased the number of registered Democrats by about 24,000, all to produce a safe Democratic district. After the advisory committee adopted the map on a party-line vote, State Senate President Thomas Miller briefed the General Assembly's Democratic caucuses about the new map's aims. Miller told his colleagues that the map would give Democrats a real opportunity to pick up a seventh seat in the delegation and that, In the face of Republican gains in redistricting in other states, we have a serious obligation to create this opportunity. The General Assembly adopted the plan on a party-line vote. Maryland's Democrats proved no less successful than North Carolina's Republicans in devising a voter-proof map. In the four elections that followed, from 2012 through 2018, Democrats have never received more than 65% of the statewide congressional vote. Yet in each of those elections, Democrats have won, you guessed it, 7 out of 10 House seats, including the once reliably Republican 6th District. Section B Now, go back to the question I asked before. Is that how American democracy is supposed to work? I have yet to meet the person who thinks so. Governments, the Declaration of Independent States, derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. The Constitution begins, We, the people of the United States. The Gettysburg addressed almost ends government of the people, by the people, for the people. If there is a single idea that made our nation and that our nation commended to the world, it is this one the people are sovereign. The power. James Madison wrote, is in the people over the government and not in the government over the people. Free and fair and periodic elections are the key to that vision. The people get to choose their representatives and then they get to decide at regular intervals whether to keep them. Madison again. Quote, Republican liberty demands not only that all power should be derived from the people, but that those entrusted with it should be kept in dependence on the people. Members of the House of Representatives, in particular, are supposed to recollect that dependence every day. To retain an intimate sympathy with the people, They must be compelled to anticipate the moment when their exercise of power is to be reviewed. Election Day, next year, and two years later, and two years after that, is what links the people to their representatives and gives the people their sovereign power. That day is the foundation of democratic governance. and. Partisan gerrymandering can make it meaningless. At its most extreme, as in North Carolina and Maryland, the practice amounts to rigging elections. By drawing districts to maximize the power of some voters and minimize the power of others, a party in office at the right time Can entrench itself there for a decade or more, no matter what the voters would prefer. Just ask the people of North Carolina and Maryland. The core principle of Republican government, this court has recognized, is that the voters should choose their representatives, not the other way around. Partisan gerrymandering turns it the other way around. By that mechanism, politicians can cherry-pick voters to ensure their reelection, And the power becomes, as Madison put it, in the government over the people. The majority disputes none of this. I think it important to underscore that fact the majority disputes none of what I have said or will say about how gerrymanders undermine democracy. Indeed, the majority concedes, really, how could it not, that gerrymandering is incompatible with democratic principles. And therefore what? That recognition would seem to demand a response. The majority offers two ideas that might qualify as such. One is that the political process can deal with the problem, a proposition so dubious on its face that I feel secure in delaying my answer for some time. The other is that political gerrymanders have always been with us. To its credit, the majority does not frame that point as an originalist constitutional argument. After all, as the majority rightly notes, racial and residential gerrymanders were also once with us but the court has done something about that fact. The majority's idea instead seems to be that if we have lived with partisan gerrymanders so long, we will survive. That complacency has no cause. Yes, partisan gerrymandering goes back to the republic's earliest days, as does vociferous opposition to it. But big data and modern technology of just the kind that the mapmakers in North Carolina and Maryland used make today's gerrymandering altogether different from the crude line-drawing of the past. Old-time efforts, based on little more than guesses, sometimes led to so-called dummy-manders gerrymanders that went spectacularly wrong. Not likely in today's world. Mapmakers now have access to more granular data about party preference and voting behavior than ever before. County-level voting data has given way to precinct-level or city-block-level data, and increasingly, mapmakers avail themselves of data sets providing wide-ranging information about even individual voters. Just as important, advancements in computing technology have enabled mapmakers to put that information to use with unprecedented efficiency and precision, while Bygone mapmakers may have drafted three or four alternative districting plans. Today's mapmakers can generate thousands of possibilities at the touch of a key and then choose the one giving their party maximum advantage, usually while still meeting traditional districting requirements. The effect is to make gerrymanders far more effective and durable than before, insulating politicians against all but the most titanic shifts in the political tides. These are not your grandfather's, let alone the framers, gerrymanders. The proof is in the 2010 pudding. That redistricting cycle produced some of the most extreme partisan gerrymanders in this country's history. I've already recounted the results from North Carolina and Maryland, and you'll hear even more about those. But the voters in those states were not the only ones to fall prey to such districting perversions. Take Pennsylvania. In the three congressional elections occurring under the state's original districting plan, before the state Supreme Court struck it down, Democrats received between 45% and 51% of the statewide vote, but won only 5 of 18 House seats. Or go next door to Ohio. There, In four congressional elections, Democrats tallied between 39% and 47% of the statewide vote, but never won more than four of 16 House seats. Nor is there any reason to think that the results in those states stemmed from political geography or nonpartisan districting criteria rather than from partisan manipulation. And gerrymanders will only get worse, or, depending on your perspective, better, as time goes on, as data becomes ever more fine-grained and data analysis techniques continue to improve. What was possible with paper and pen, or even with Windows 95, doesn't hold a candle, or an LED light bulb to what will become possible with developments like machine learning. And some place along this road, we the people become sovereign no longer. Section C. Partisan gerrymandering of the kind before us not only subverts democracy, as if that weren't bad enough. It violates individuals' constitutional rights as well. That statement is not the lonesome cry of a dissenting justice. This court has recognized extreme partisan gerrymandering as such a violation for many years. Partisan gerrymandering operates through vote dilution, the devaluation of one citizen's vote as compared to others. A mapmaker draws district lines to pack and crack voters likely to support the disfavored party. He packs supermajorities of those voters into a relatively few districts, in numbers far greater than needed for their preferred candidates to prevail. Then he cracks the rest across many more districts, spreading them so thin that their candidates will not be able to win. Whether the person is packed or cracked, his vote carries less weight, has less consequence than it would under a neutrally drawn nonpartisan map. In short, the mapmaker has made some votes count for less because they are likely to go for the other party. That practice implicates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The 14th Amendment, we long ago recognized, guarantees the opportunity for equal participation by all voters in the election of legislators. And that opportunity can be denied by a debasement or dilution of the weight of a citizen's vote, just as effectively as by wholly prohibiting the free exercise of the franchise. Based on that principle, this court, in its one-person, one-vote decisions, prohibited creating districts with significantly different populations. A state could not, we explained, thus dilute the weight of votes because of place of residence. The constitutional injury in a partisan gerrymandering case is much the same, except that the dilution is based on party affiliation. In such a case too, the districters have set out to reduce the weight of certain citizens' votes and thereby deprive them of their capacity to fully and effectively participate in the political process. As Justice Kennedy, in a controlling opinion, once hypothesized, if districtors declared that they were drawing a map so as most to burden the votes of party X's supporters, it would violate the Equal Protection Clause. And partisan gerrymandering implicates the First Amendment, too. That amendment gives its greatest protection to political beliefs, speech, and association. Yet partisan gerrymanders subject certain voters to disfavored treatment, again counting their votes for less, precisely because of their voting history and their expression of political views. And added to that, strictly personal harm is an associational one. Representative democracy is unimaginable without the ability of citizens to band together in support of candidates who espouse their political views. By diluting the votes of certain citizens, the state frustrates their efforts to translate those affiliations into political effectiveness. In both those ways, partisan gerrymanders of the kind we confront here undermine the protections of democracy embodied in the First Amendment. Though different justices have described the constitutional harm in diverse ways, nearly all have agreed on this much. Extreme partisan gerrymandering as happened in North Carolina and Maryland, violates the Constitution. And, indeed, without this settled and shared understanding that cases like these inflict constitutional injury, the question of whether there are judicially manageable standards for resolving them would never come up. Part Two So the only way to understand the majority's opinion is as follows. In the face of grievous harm to democratic governance and flagrant infringements on individuals' rights, in the face of escalating partisan manipulation whose compatibility with this nation's values and law no one defends, the majority declines to provide any remedy. For the first time in this nation's history, the majority declares that it can do nothing about an acknowledged constitutional violation because it had searched high and low and cannot find a workable legal standard to apply. The majority gives two reasons for thinking that the adjudication of partisanship gerrymandering claims is beyond judicial capabilities. First and foremost, the majority says, it cannot find a neutral baseline, one not based on contestable notions of political fairness from which to measure injury. According to the majority, partisan gerrymandering claims invariably sound in a desire for proportional representation. But the Constitution does not mandate proportional representation. So, the majority contends, resolving those claims inevitably would require courts to decide what is fair in the context of districting. They would have to make their own political judgment about how much representation particular political parties deserve, and to rearrange the challenged districts to achieve that end. And second... The majority argues that even after establishing a baseline, a court would have no way to answer the determinative question. How much is too much? No discernible and manageable standard is available, the majority claims. And so courts could willy-nilly become embroiled in fixing every districting plan. I'll give the majority this one and important thing it identifies some dangers everyone should want to avoid. Judges should not be apportioning political power based on their own vision of electoral fairness, whether proportional representation or any other. And judges should not be striking down maps, left, right, and center, on the view that every smidgen of politics is a smidgen too much respect for state legislative processes, and restraint in the exercise of judicial authority, counsel's intervention in only egregious cases. But in throwing up its hands, the majority misses something under its nose. What it says can't be done has been done. Over the past several years, federal courts across the country including but not exclusively in the decisions below, have largely converged on a standard for adjudicating partisan gerrymandering claims, striking down both Democratic and Republican districting plans in the process. And that standard does what the majority says is impossible. This standard does not use any judge-made conception of electoral fairness either proportional representation or any other. Instead, it takes as its baseline a state's own criteria of fairness, apart from partisan gain. And by requiring plaintiffs to make difficult showings related to both purpose and effects, the standard invalidates the most extreme, but only the most extreme partisan gerrymanders. Below, I first explain the framework courts have developed and describe its application in these two cases. Doing so reveals, in even starker detail than before, how much these partisan gerrymanders deviated from democratic norms. As I lay out the lower courts' analyses, I considered two specific criticisms the majority levels, each of which reveals a saddening nonchalance about the threat such districting poses to self-governance. All of that lays the groundwork for then assessing the majority's more general view, described above, that judicial policing in this area cannot be either neutral or restrained. The lower court's reasoning, as I'll show, proves the opposite. Section A start with the standard the lower courts used. The majority disaggregates the opinions below, distinguishing the one from the other and then chopping up each into a number of tests. But in doing so, it fails to convey the decision's most significant and common features. Both courts focused on the harm of vote dilution, though the North Carolina court mostly grounded its analysis in the 14th Amendment and the Maryland court in the first. And both courts, like others around the country, used basically the same three-part test to decide whether the plaintiffs had made out a vote dilution claim. As many legal standards do, that test has three parts, one, intent, two, effects, and three, causation. First, the plaintiffs challenging a districting plan must prove that the state's officials' predominant purpose in drawing a district's lines was to entrench their party in power by diluting the votes of citizens favoring its rival. Second, the plaintiffs must establish that the lines drawn in fact have the intended effect by substantially diluting their votes. And third, if the plaintiffs make those showings, the state must come up with a legitimate nonpartisan justification to save its map. If you are a lawyer, you know that this test looks utterly ordinary. It is the sort of thing courts work with every day. Now turn to the test's application. First, did the North Carolina and Maryland districtors have the predominant purpose of entrenching their own party in power? Here, the two district courts cataloged the overwhelming direct evidence that they did. To remind you of some highlights, North Carolina's redistricting committee used partisan advantage as an official criterion for drawing district lines. And from the first to the last, that committee's chair, along with his mapmaker, acted to ensure a 10-to-3 partisan split, whatever the statewide vote, because he thought that electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats. For their part, Maryland's Democrats, the governor, senior congressman, and state senate president alike, openly admitted to a single driving purpose, flip the 6th district from Republican to Democratic. They did not blanch from moving some 700,000 voters into new districts when one-person, one-vote rules required relocating just 10,000. For that reason and that reason alone. The majority's response to the district court's purpose analysis is discomfiting. The majority does not contest the lower court's findings. How could it? Instead, the majority says that state officials' intent to entrench their party in power is perfectly permissible, even when it is the predominant factor in drawing district lines. But that is wrong. True enough that the intent to inject political considerations into districting may not raise any constitutional concerns. In Gaffney v. Cummings, 1973, for example, we thought it non problematic when state officials used political data to ensure rough proportional representation between the two parties. And true enough, that even the naked purpose to gain partisan advantage may not rise to the level of constitutional notice when it is not the driving force in map making or when the intended gain is slight. But when political actors have a specific and predominant intent to entrench themselves in power by manipulating district lines, that goes too far. Consider again Justice Kennedy's hypothetical of mapmakers who set out to maximally burden, or make count for as little as possible, the votes going to a rival party. Does the majority really think that goal is permissible? But why even bother with hypotheticals? Just consider the purposes here. It cannot be permissible and thus irrelevant. As the majority claims, that state officials have as their purpose the kind of grotesquely gerrymandered map that, according to all this court has ever said, violates the Constitution on to the second step of the analysis, where the plaintiffs must prove that the districting plan substantially dilutes their votes. The majority fails to discuss most of the evidence the district courts relied on to find that the plaintiffs had done so. But that evidence, particularly from North Carolina, is the key to understanding both the problem these cases present and the solution to it they offer. The evidence reveals just how bad the two gerrymanders were, in case you had any doubts, and it shows how the same technologies and data that today facilitate extreme partisan gerrymanders also enable courts to discover them by exposing just how much they dilute votes. Consider the sort of evidence used in North Carolina first. There, the plaintiffs demonstrated the districting plan's effects mostly by relying on what might be called the extreme outlier approach. The approach, which also has recently been used in Michigan and Ohio litigation, begins by using advanced computing technology to randomly generate a large collection of districting plans that incorporate the state's physical and political geography and meet its declared districting criteria, except for partisan gain. For each of those maps, the method then uses actual precinct-level votes from past elections to determine a partisan outcome, i.e., the number of Democratic and Republican seats that map produces. Suppose we now have 1,000 maps, each with a partisan outcome attached to it. We can line up those maps on a continuum, the most favorable to Republicans on one end, the most favorable to Democrats on the other. We can then find the median outcome, that is, the outcome smack dab in the center, in a world with no partisan manipulation and we can see where the state's actual plan falls on the spectrum, at or near the median or way out on one of the tails. The further out on the tail, the more extreme the partisan distortion and the more significant the vote dilution. Using that approach, the North Carolina plaintiffs offered a boatload of alternative districting plans all showing that the state's map was an out, 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 outlier. One expert introduced 3,000 maps adhering in the way described above to the districting criteria that North Carolina Redistricting Committee had used, other than partisan advantage. To calculate the partisan outcome of those maps, the expert also used the same election data a composite of seven elections that Hoffeller had employed when devising the North Carolina plan in the first instance. The results were, shall we say, striking. Every single one of the 3,000 maps would have produced at least one more Democratic House member than the state's actual map, and 77% would have elected three or four more. A second expert obtained essentially the same results with maps conforming to more generic districting criteria, for example, compactness and contiguity of districts. Over 99% of that expert's 24,518 simulations would have led to the election of at least one more Democrat and over 70% would have led to two or three more. Based on those and other findings, the district court determined that the North Carolina plan substantially dilutes the plaintiff's votes. Because the Maryland gerrymander involved just one district, the evidence in that case was far simpler, but no less powerful for that. You've heard some of the numbers before. The 2010 census required only a minimal change in the sixth district's population, the subtraction of about 10,000 residents for more than 700,000. But instead of making a correspondingly minimal adjustment, Democratic officials reconfigured the entire district. They moved 360,000 residents out, and another 350,000 in, while splitting some counties for the first time in almost two centuries. The upshot was a district with 66,000 fewer Republican voters and 24,000 more Democratic ones. In the old sixth, 47% of registered voters were Republicans and only 36% Democrats. but. In the New Sixth, 44% of registered voters were Democrats and only 33% Republicans. That reversal of the district's partisan composition translated into four consecutive Democratic victories, including in a wave election year for Republicans, 2014. In what was once a party stronghold, Republicans now have little or no chance to elect their preferred candidate. The district court thus found that the gerrymandered Maryland map substantially dilutes Republicans' votes. The majority claims all these findings are mere prognostications about the future in which no one can have any confidence but the courts below did not gaze into crystal balls, as the majority tries to suggest. Their findings about these gerrymanders' effects on voters, both in the past and predictably in the future, were evidence-based, data-based, statistics-based. Knowledge-based, one might say. The courts did what anyone would want a decision-maker to do when so much hangs in the balance they looked hard at the facts, and they went where the facts led them. They availed themselves of all the information that mapmakers like Hoffeller and Hawkins and politicians like Lewis and O'Malley worked so hard to amass and then use to make every districting decision. They refused to content themselves with unsupported and out-of-date musings about the unpredictability of the American voter. They did not bet America's future, as today the majority does, on the idea that maps constructed with so much expertise and care to make electoral outcomes impervious to voting would somehow or other come apart. They looked at the evidence, at the facts about how these districts operated, and they could reach only one conclusion. By substantially diluting the votes of citizens favoring their rivals, the politicians of one party had succeeded in entrenching themselves in office. They had beat democracy. Section B The majority's broadest claim, as I've noted, is that this is a price we must pay because judicial oversight of partisan gerrymandering cannot be politically neutral or manageable. Courts, the majority argues, will have to choose among contested notions of electoral fairness. Should they take as the ideal mode of districting proportional representation, many competitive seats, adherence to traditional districting criteria, or so forth? And even once courts have chosen, the majority continues, they will have to decide how much is too much. That is, how much deviation from the chosen touchstone to allow? In answering that question, the majority surmises, they will likely go too far. So the whole thing is impossible, the majority concludes. To prove its point, the majority throws a bevy of question marks on the page. I count nine in just two paragraphs. But it never tries to analyze the serious question presented here. Whether the kind of standard developed below falls prey to those objections or instead allows for neutral and manageable oversight. The answer, as you've already heard enough to know, is the latter. That kind of oversight is not only possible, it's been done. Consider neutrality first. Contrary to the majority's suggestion, the district courts did not have to, and in fact did not, choose among competing visions of electoral fairness. That is because they did not try to compare the state's actual map to an ideally fair one, whether based on proportional representation or some other criterion. Instead, they looked at the difference between what the state did and what the state would have done if politicians hadn't been intent on partisan gain. Or put differently, the comparator is the result not of a judge's philosophizing, but of the state's own characteristics and judgments. The effects evidence in these cases accepted as a given the state's physical geography and political geography. So the courts did not, in the majority's words, try to counteract natural gerrymandering caused, for example, by the urban concentration of one party. Still more, the courts' analyses used the state's own criteria for electoral fairness, except for naked partisan gain. Under their approach, in other words, the state selected its own fairness baseline in the form of its other districting criteria. All the courts did was determine how far the state had gone off that track because of its politicians' effort to entrench themselves in office. The North Carolina litigation well illustrates the point. The thousands of randomly generated maps I've mentioned formed the core of the plaintiff's case that the North Carolina plan was an extreme outlier. Those maps took the state's political landscape as a given. In North Carolina, for example, Democratic voters are highly concentrated in cities. That fact was built into all the maps. It became part of the baseline. On top of that, The maps took the state's legal landscape as a given. They incorporated the state's districting priorities, excluding partisanship. So in North Carolina, for example, all the maps adhere to the traditional criteria of contiguity and compactness. But the comparator maps in another state would have incorporated different objectives, say, the emphasis Arizona places on competitive districts or the requirement Iowa imposes that counties remain whole. The point is that the assemblage of maps reflecting the characteristics and judgments of the state itself creates a neutral baseline from which to assess whether partisanship has run amok. Extreme outlier? As to what? as to the other maps the state could have produced given its unique political geography and its chosen districting criteria, not as to the maps a judge with his own view of electoral fairness could have dreamed up. The Maryland court lacked North Carolina's fancy evidence, but analyzed the gerrymanders' effects in much the same way, not as against an ideal goal, but against an ex-ante baseline. To see the difference, shift gears for a moment and compare Maryland and Massachusetts, both of which, aside from Maryland's partisan gerrymander, use traditional districting criteria. In those two states alike, Republicans receive about 35% of the vote in statewide elections. But the political geography of the states differs. In Massachusetts, the Republican vote is spread evenly across the state. Because that is so, districting plans, using traditional criteria of contiguity and compactness, consistently lead to an all-Democratic congressional delegation. By contrast, in Maryland, Republicans are clumped into the eastern shore, the 1st District, and the northwest corner, the Old Sixth. Claims of partisan gerrymandering in those two states could come out the same way if judges, a la the majority, used their own visions of fairness to police districting plans. A judge in each state could then insist, in line with proportional representation, that 35% of the vote share entitles citizens to around that much of the delegation. But those suits would not come out the same if courts instead asked, what would have happened given the state's natural political geography and chosen districting criteria had officials not indulged in partisan manipulation? And that is what the district court in Maryland inquired into. The court did not strike down the new sixth district because a judicial ideal of proportional representation commanded another Republican seat. It invalidated that district because the quest for partisan gain made the state override its own political geography and districting criteria. So much, then, for the impossibility of neutrality. The majority's sole response misses the point. According to the majority, it does not make sense to use a state's own nonpartisan districting criteria as the baseline from which to measure partisan gerrymandering because those criteria will vary from state to state and year to year. But that is a virtue, not a vice, a feature, not a bug. Using the criteria the state itself has chosen at the relevant time prevents any judicial predilections from affecting the analysis, exactly what the majority claims it wants. At the same time, using those criteria enables a court to measure just what it should. The extent to which the pursuit of partisan advantage by these legislators at this moment has distorted the state's districting decisions. Sure, different nonpartisan criteria could result, as the majority notes, in different partisan distributions to serve as the baseline. But that in itself raises no issue. Everyone agrees that state officials using nonpartisan criteria have wide latitude in districting. The problem arises only when legislators or mapmakers substantially deviate from the baseline distribution by manipulating district lines for partisan gain. So, once again, the majority's analysis falters because it equates the demand to eliminate partisan gerrymandering with a demand for a single partisan distribution, the one reflecting proportional representation. But those two demands are different, and only the former is at issue here. The majority's how-much-is-too-much critique fares no better than its neutrality argument. How about the following for a first-cut answer? This much is too much. By any measure, a map that produces a greater partisan skew than any of 3,000 randomly generated maps reflects too much partisanship. Think about what I just said. Absolute worst of 3,001. Possible maps, the only one that could produce a 10 to 3 partisan split, even as Republicans got a bare majority of the statewide vote. And again, how much is too much? This much is too much, a map that without any evident nonpartisan districting reason, to the contrary, shifted the composition of a district from 47% Republicans and 36% Democrats to 33% Republicans and 42% Democrats, a map that in 2011 was responsible for the largest partisan swing of a congressional district in the country. Even the majority acknowledges that these cases involve blatant examples of partisanship driving district decisions. If the majority had done nothing else, it could have set the line here. How much is too much? At the least, any gerrymanders as bad as these. And if the majority thought that approach too case-specific, It could have used the lower court's general standard, focusing on predominant purpose and substantial effects without fear of indeterminacy. I do not take even the majority to claim that courts are incapable of investigating whether legislators mainly intended to seek partisan advantage. That is for good reason. Although purpose inquiries carry certain hazards, they are a common form of analysis in constitutional cases. Those inquiries would be no harder here than in other contexts. Nor is there any reason to doubt, as the majority does, the competence of courts to determine whether a district map substantially dilutes the votes of a rival party supporters from the everything-but-partisanship baseline described above. As this court recently noted, the law is full of instances where a judge's decision rests on estimating rightly some matter of degree, including the substantiality of risk or harm. The majority is wrong to think that these laws typically, let alone uniformly, further confine and guide judicial decision-making. They do not, either in themselves or through statutory context. To the extent additional guidance has developed over the years, as under the Sherman Act, courts themselves have been its author, as they could be in this context too. And contrary to the majority's suggestion, Courts all the time make judgments about the substantiality of harm without reducing them to particular percentages. If courts are no longer competent to do so, they will have to relinquish, well, substantial portions of their docket. And the combined inquiry used in these cases set the bar high, so that the courts could intervene in the worst partisan gerrymanders, but no others. Or, to say the same thing, so that courts could intervene in the kind of extreme gerrymanders that nearly every justice for decades has thought to violate the Constitution. Illicit purpose was simple to show here only because politicians and mapmakers thought their actions could not be attacked in court. They therefore felt free to openly proclaim their intent to entrench their party in office. But if the court today had declared that behavior justiciable, such smoking guns would all but disappear, even assuming some officials continued to try implementing extreme partisan gerrymanders. They would not brag about their efforts, so plaintiffs would have to prove the intent to entrench through circumstantial evidence, essentially showing that no other explanation, no geographic feature or non-partisan districting objective could explain the districting plan's vote dilutive effects. And that would be impossible unless those effects were even more than substantial, unless mapmakers had packed and cracked with abandon in unprecedented ways, as, again, they did here. That the two courts below found constitutional violations does not mean their tests were unrigorous. It means that the conduct they confronted was constitutionally appalling, by even the strictest measure, inordinately partisan. The majority, in the end, fails to understand both the plaintiff's claims and the decisions below. Everything in today's opinion assumes that these cases grew out of a desire for proportional representation, or more generally phrased, a fair share of political power, and everything in it assumes that the courts below had to and did decide what that fair share would be. But that is not so. The plaintiffs objected to one specific practice, the extreme manipulation of district lines for partisan gain. Elimination of that practice could have led to proportional representation, or it could have led to nothing close. What was left after the practice's removal could have been fair, or could have been unfair by any number of measures. That was not the crux of this suit. The plaintiffs asked only that the courts bar politicians from entrenching themselves in power by diluting the votes of their rival's supporters, and the courts, using neutral and manageable and eminently legal standards, provided that, and only that, relief. This court should have cheered, not overturned, that restoration of the people's power to vote. Part 3 This court has long understood that it has a special responsibility to remedy violations of constitutional rights resulting from politicians' districting decisions. Over 50 years ago, we committed to providing judicial review in that sphere, recognizing as we established the one-person, one-vote rule that Our oath and our office require no less. Of course, our oath and our office require us to vindicate all constitutional rights. But the need for judicial review is at its most urgent in cases like these. For here, politicians' incentives conflict with voters' interests leaving citizens without any political remedy for their constitutional harms. Those harms arise because politicians want to stay in office. No one can look to them for effective relief. The majority disagrees, concluding its opinion with the peon to congressional bills limiting partisan gerrymanders Dozens of those bills have been introduced, the majority says. One was introduced in 2005 and has been reintroduced in every Congress since. And might be reintroduced until the end of time. Because what all these bills have in common is that they are not laws. The politicians who benefit from partisan gerrymandering are unlikely to change partisan gerrymandering. And because those politicians maintain themselves in office through partisan gerrymandering, the chances for legislative reform are slight. No worries, the majority says. It has another idea. The majority notes that voters themselves have recently approved ballot initiatives to put power over districting in the hands of independent commissions or other nonpartisan actors. Some members of the majority, of course, once thought such initiatives unconstitutional. But put that aside, fewer than half the states offer voters an opportunity to put initiatives to direct vote. In all the rest, including North Carolina and Maryland, voters are dependent on legislators to make electoral changes, which, for all the reasons already given, they are unlikely to do. And even when voters have a mechanism they can work themselves, legislators often fight their efforts tooth and nail. Look at Missouri. There, the majority touts a voter-approved proposal to turn districting over to a state demographer. But before the demographer had drawn a single line, members of the state legislature had introduced a bill to start undoing the change. I'd put better odds on that bill's passage than on all the congressional proposals the majority cites. The majority's most perplexing solution is to look to state courts. Our conclusion, the majority states, does not condemn complaints about districting to echo into a void. Just a few years back, the Supreme Court of Florida struck down that state's congressional districting plan as a violation of the state constitution. And, indeed, the majority might have added, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania last year did the same thing. But what did those courts know that this court does not? If they can develop and apply neutral and manageable standards to identify constitutional gerrymanders, why couldn't we? We could have, and we should have. The gerrymanders here, and they are typical of many, violated the constitutional rights of many hundreds of thousands of American citizens. Those voters, Republicans in the one case, Democrats in the other, did not have an equal opportunity to participate in the political process. Their votes counted for far less than they should have because of their partisan affiliation. When faced with such constitutional wrongs, courts must intervene. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. That is what the courts below did. Their decisions are worth a read. They and others that have recently remedied similar violations are detailed, thorough, painstaking. They evaluated with immense care the factual evidence and legal arguments the parties presented. They used neutral and manageable and strict standards. They had not a shred of politics about them. Contra the majority. This was law. That is not to deny, of course, that these cases have great political consequence. They do. Among the amicus briefs here is one from a bipartisan group of current and former members of the House of Representatives. They describe all the ways partisan gerrymandering harms our political system, what they call a cascade of negative results. These artificially drawn districts shift influence from swing voters to party-based voters who participate in primaries, make bipartisanship and pragmatic compromise politically difficult or impossible and drive voters away from an ever-more dysfunctional political process. Last year, we heard much the same from current and former state legislators. In their view, partisan gerrymandering has, quote, "...sounded the death knell of bipartisanship, creating a legislative environment that is toxic and tribal." Gerrymandering, in short, helps create the polarized political system so many Americans loathe. And gerrymandering is, as so many justices have emphasized before, anti-democratic in the most profound sense. In our government, all political power flows from the people. And that means, as Alexander Hamilton once said, that the people should choose whom they please to govern them. But in Maryland and North Carolina, they cannot do so. In Maryland, election in and election out, there are seven Democrats and one Republican in the congressional delegation. In North Carolina, however the political winds blow, there are 10 Republicans and three Democrats. Is it conceivable that someday voters will be able to break out of that prefabricated box? Sure. But everything possible has been done to make that hard. To create a world in which power does not flow from the people because they do not choose their governors. Of all times, to abandon the court's duty to declare the law. This was not the one. The practices challenged in these cases imperil our system of government. Part of the court's role in that system is to defend its foundations. None is more important than free and fair elections. With respect, but deep sadness, I dissent. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.